Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living Life Aloud. I'm your host, Jason Wiggin. So I invite you to join me on a journey to better understanding hearing loss and its impact on your life. As someone who began losing their hearing in their late teens and is now an audiologist, I've had my own personal journey, and I want to share yours. I want to hear from you, and I want to help you and be able to be more confident and have a better quality of life. So let's start living life aloud. So we have Marianne Carter back this week. Marianne is the lead consultant and owner of Carter Hears, an educational consulting group for primarily children with hearing loss in Fort Mill, South Carolina. Last week, we heard about her personal journey and her story as a CODA, a child of deaf adults, and how that helped shape who she is today. So this week, we're going to learn about how she has used that experience and how that has helped shape who she is professionally. I now bring you, once again, Mary Ann Carter. All right, Mary Ann, it's great to see you again. How are you? I'm good, Jason. How are you? It's always nice to be here with you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. I want to learn. I personally, I mean, we've known each other for a while professionally, but I, I personally want to learn more uh, about your business. Um, we learned about your personal story last time, and uh, this time I want to see how that brought you professionally to where you are today. So uh, you are the founder, um, to use that term, of Carter Hears, and... Um, you know what? I'm going to let you take it because you can talk about your business and the services you provide a lot better than me. <laughs> well, Jason, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about Carter Hears because Carter Hears was kind of born out of faith um, for me because I had my parents were obviously a huge part of my life. And we talked about this as my experience as a CODA, but I'm a third generation deaf educator and um you know, I, I I have a very interesting background. I started as a teacher of the deaf. I've worked in schools for the deaf. I've worked in um, a public school where I had my own classroom of children who were deaf. And then I've also worked as an itinerant teacher and a coordinator of special ed. Um, and so my background really lends me this beautiful look at what does deaf education look like in a lot of different places. And one of the biggest um, experiences that I appreciate having as in my career was working at the State Department of Education in South Carolina as the uh, as the deaf educator uh, liaison there. And at that time, it was a full time position. Prior to me being there, it wasn't. And when I left, it was not. It is a um, part time position that they share with the School for the Deaf and the Blind. So in my uniqueness of being there as a full time person, it really gave me. Um, a good look at what everything looks like in different settings and also that kind of what I call top down to kids. So I was very able, I was very able, sorry, I was able to be involved with um, things at the national level and, you know, write responses to Congress about different things that they were suggesting for the Education Act they were working on all the way down to what does that really look like in the classroom for a kid? And how does that play out? What should that look like? Um, 
And one of the things in South Carolina that we do have a lot of freedom and liberty to make choices for our kids who are deaf and hard of hearing, but there are some things that are really important to follow. And I think that um, our communities and looking at how we develop language is really important. And that was also something important to my grandmother and my mother and, and I. So as a three, three generations of deaf ed, it was really just important for me to look at what do I want to do with deaf ed? I really had some wonderful experiences in school districts and um, at the State Department and at the School for the Deaf, not in South Carolina, at, in Tennessee, actually. But those experiences really taught me about what I feel like it should look like. <laughs> and I do think that we call that the Carter Hears difference. And the Carter Hears difference really looks at the whole child. We want to know how they're doing academically, language-wise, functionally. Like, what do they understand about their hearing loss? How do they interact in the world with that in whatever environment they're choosing? Um, how do they integrate technology into their life? Not just their personal technology, but all different types of technology. And then, of course, I really talk to parents also about developing the person that they are. Um, you know, that's something that for some deaf and hard of hearing children has to be directly taught. Like they're, you know, giving them an understanding that this is kind of the options that exist in the world and trying to figure out who you are. So those are the five main components that we really try to look at and assess and bring to life in our in our um, work with children. Our team is built up of teachers of the deaf. We have SLPs. We also prefer that those SLPs have ABT background, which is for your listeners, um, speech language pathologists that have an auditory verbal therapy background um, because our kids need that because there's a developmental way to address that. I also think that good SLPs that have familiarity with students who are deaf and hard of hearing also understand the value of language um, because sometimes we run into um, audition and articulation as being a priority, which is true, but there's language deficits that are specific that need to be addressed. And so having them on our team really helps not only the kids that we directly serve, but it also helps um, some of our teachers of the deaf that work in other environments where we can come in and coach and support those SLPs. Sometimes us as teachers of the deaf, we come in and we support other teachers of the deaf. Um, because I'm sure you know, Jason, as an audiologist, you're a lone wolf some of the time if you're in an educational environment. And so that's something we also experience. So having camaraderie and being around other people that do what we do is important. Um, and then the last thing that we really push at Carter Hears is we like to hire people who have hearing loss. We like to hire people who are deaf themselves um, because their natural experience of what they what they have gone through growing up, um, how successful they've been at reading and writing, um, different ways that they choose to communicate and why. Why, did, why is that a value to them? What's a value in the equipment or the technology that you want to use? Those things are very personal and I think they're very individualized. But having individuals who have hearing loss on our team really do bring about the deaf and hard of hearing experience. And so we can make sure that we're encompassing all of that because even me as a CODA, child of deaf adults, I, I didn't necessarily live their experience, but I did experience it with them, but I didn't live their exact experience. And so kind of taking that all into, into heart is important. 
No, definitely. And that's that's a really, that last point, you know, hiring folks that have had challenges with hearing loss, again, their own children, like yours, as a child of deaf adults, that brings a perspective, a different perspective, a unique perspective. It does for me, right, as an audiologist, I definitely, I probably go swing the pendulum to too far to the other end where I don't, I try to not disqualify, but I try not to base my counseling and things on my own experience at all. You know, I don't ever want to assume, oh yeah, I know how that is. Just, well, you know, you could grow up in the same town, hearing loss, no hearing loss, you know, and have a different experience in the same middle school, right, as a friend. So, um, but still that is, that is something unique of value. Um, so, okay, just to, to frame it or, uh, correctly for the listener and so forth. So do you contract or do you work for, or have arrangements with the school districts and educators, private school, school district, or is, are you available to parents? So where a parent could come and say, okay, I'd like to explore your services. I have a child. Um, and again, whether it's just lack of resources, I shouldn't say resource, lack of just any kind of comprehensive approach to taking care of those child's or that child's challenges and their their needs educationally, maybe they're in a private school, things like that. So is it, again, school districts that you contract with or individuals? Yeah, such a great question, Jason. So a bulk of our work is usually contracting with school districts. Um, and some of those school districts, we contract with them because they just don't have a large enough group of kids that they need a full-time teacher. Sometimes we work with school districts because they already do have full-time teachers, but they got an extra group of kids they weren't expecting. Um, and so they need some help during that school year. The other thing that we do is um, we also work with charter schools, private schools, and we also work with parents. Some parents who are homeschooling parents they do have us come in and do things with them as well. So we we have a variety of different avenues to receiving our services. So it could be through your school. It could be on a personal note um, that you would like to contract with us. But we primarily have contracts where we work with students and um, in their learning environments, wherever that might be. And um, I will say that at times we have been contracted to be an advocate for students. Sometimes if a parent needs an outside evaluation or they need somebody else to come to an IEP table or have a hard conversation, sometimes we we are invited to those conversations as well. Um, but I definitely support parents by saying, hey, I'll give you a little bit of my time because I'd rather the parent resolve issues on their own. Um, because it helps build teamwork, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then also there's other resources, as you know, Jason, like we have we have South Carolina Beginnings and things like that that can be there for parents as well. And we're they definitely serve a great purpose, and we are huge supporters of them. But um, sometimes just does require a little extra um, advocacy sometimes at the table. <laughs> well, sure, sure. And some different approaches, different Different models, different businesses, yeah. different, you know, different needs met and that sort of thing. So, so if, uh, say a, a parent, so you have your um, contracts and whatnot with uh, school districts or private schools and, and what have you, but say a parent who's homeschooling, uh, what, is, what does it look like when they approach you and say, hey, um, I've heard a lot about you, what, uh, 
How do you start that process? What kind of how, how did the provision of services go? Yeah, that's such a great question. So usually we um, when we hear it from parents or we have a request from somebody that's homeschooling, we usually ask the parent to share with us any information or data. First, we want to hear from them. What do they see in their child? What can you tell me about your child's hearing loss? Why did you choose to homeschool? Like there's usually some value in knowing those pieces of information. And once you have that, then usually I'll ask, do you have any evaluation information? It might be from their private speech language pathologist. It might be something that they went through at school and they opted out of, you know, going to school. So we've, the parent still has that information. And we usually will look at that first. Once that's done, if there's pieces that are missing or things that we'd like to see, we'll usually go out and visit them at their home. Now, I will say with COVID, that looked a little bit different where we had to do um, some Zoom observations, which is very fun and different. But, um, but you know, we, we tried to do things like that so we can figure out what's the best strategy. Sometimes with homeschooling, as you know, it's very um, flexible in its design. So sometimes it might be better to coach the parent with specific things that they can integrate into the lessons that they're doing. And then sometimes it needs to be targeted one-on-one support, teaching, therapy, whatever that might be that we deem the child would would need to make progress. So um, it can look a little bit different, but it definitely is still something that's valuable to those people who choose to homeschool. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. So you service South Carolina, North Carolina, or again, I understand, you know, a couple things in the world of telecommuting, telehealth, if you will. But I mean, so that opens up the possibilities, but are there, um, where are, are you available for consult, um, throughout from anywhere or are you just here in the Carolinas? Yeah, such a good question. So primarily our services are in South Carolina and North Carolina. Um, and we work with some other groups that are larger that serve larger groups in the United States, like Illinois and California and Utah. And there are times when I will be brought in to consult on students or situations on what's the best assessments to give, or we're struggling with how to design this program for this child. So I definitely am open to supporting that, but there are limitations. For example, you know, the laws that are in North Carolina are a little different than they are in South Carolina. So sometimes you can give suggestions, but you have to say, I also understand that this might look different in your environment. Um, so there's things like that. We also I had the super fun experience today. Sorry. Um, super fun experience today to volunteer and do some things with the World Pediatric Project. Um, and those are some other callings that we really feel strongly about if we're invited to do those things. Um, we have a spirit of giving back and, and that was something that was a super wonderful gift to me, but our team is, you know, very excited about ways to give back as well. So, um, you know, we definitely enjoy working in our spaces in South Carolina and North Carolina, but if we have an opportunity to be in different places, Boy, do we like to take it because we learn just as much as we might be able to give. <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, I bet that's uh, and the opportunities just to serve beyond your backyard is is great. It's great for the populations. It's great for you. It's great for the, uh, you know, the whole business. So tell me this. What does it look like? What? Let's do two pronged, I guess, here. Two things. Number one, for 
a school district, what sorts of challenges or issues do they need to recognize to where they say, you know what, we need some help here, and they start looking for someone like you to come and support them? What does that look like? What, what you know, what, uh, what voids are they having to where they need yeah. your services? Yeah, so there's some interesting things. I can't speak so much in North Carolina because they're more new to us than South Carolina is. But in South Carolina, some of the challenges that exist. um, Well, in general, any school district anywhere where they say we need some additional support services, like from someone like Marianne Carter from Carter here, some group that can help us better serve these kids. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for framing that. What I would share with you is usually school districts reach out to us if they are having difficulty finding a position for a teacher of the deaf that they can't just they can't find a person to teach as a teacher of the deaf. Um, The other times that we we run into this is when they have some challenges, whether it's in a student specific challenge, you know, in an IEP meeting and they're trying to find some resolution. But sometimes it's also that they they have children that come to them that may be outside of the scope of that current teacher of the deaf, meaning they may not have um, experience with cueing, or they may not be fluent in sign language, or they may not know enough about auditory verbal therapy, and what does that look like, and how should that be set up? And then we have great, we have great teachers that totally know how to do that, but in the districts that reach out, they're the ones looking for those answers. They're trying to figure out, how do we develop this program so that it's effective for this child? And um, I think our vast experience and our, our comfortableness with a variety of communication modes and, and, a, and a really tactical approach to developing language is one of the reasons that people are drawn to our services, because we do take a hard line and support the idea of language development in children, and that being first and foremost. Um, and that's sometimes hard, because in our world of especially general school districts and, and, and charter schools and things like that, they want the kids to be seated in the seat for so long for English and math and those kinds of things. But if the language is too much, it's going to be difficult to learn. Um, so those are, those are primary sometimes, primarily some of the reasons that they'll reach out to us. The other thing is, is that sometimes if they have a new teacher, like I talked about earlier, that you're the, you're, you're the only one in that district, right? And so who do they go to for help? So one of the one of the key services that we provide a lot of districts is coaching services for their teachers of the deaf so that they can work smarter, not harder, that they know where to value and do appropriate assessments and organize information and learn more about equipment and those kinds of strategies that sometimes teachers of the deaf either weren't exposed to as part of their training um, or they just haven't had that kind of practice. And so having a partner in that is very helpful to ensuring success for kids with hearing loss. So for parents, so again, like the homeschool example, but in general, what what sorts of things should parents not should watch out for, but what sorts of things are they potentially going to run into or could potentially run into where services from yourself or Carter Hears is going to help them and support them in, again, you had mentioned advocacy. You'd mentioned, of course, whether or not they're in private school or homeschool or even public school. Is there anything or I guess what would lead them to your doorstep? 
So sometimes, in, in all honesty, parents are frustrated or they're not sure exactly what they want to, um, what they think they should be getting from that school, or they're not sure if their child is making good good progress. Um, and so when that happens, it's a, it's a huge challenge to them because they're not sure, is my child making an appro- appropriate progress? Are we really getting the services that are needed for my child based on assessments or things like that. So sometimes they'll have us do just a case review for them. Sometimes they will share that they're having difficulty getting services and they want to know what what should services look like? What what could that be? Um, And also, are the right people working on the right things? Um, And I will say that most of the time school districts are doing a great job, but there are times when even with their best intentions, it's something is amiss and there's never an understanding as to why that is, but it doesn't hurt to have a parent be curious and want affirmation or information that helps them, you know, come up with an idea of, okay, is everything going the way it should? Am I, is my child making the progress they should be making? Should I be doing something different? Should I be asking for something different? And those, those moments give parents a sense of pause just to say, okay, I've had this reviewed by someone else or I feel confident that this is a situation, or sometimes parents will say, I really want my child to have CART as an example. I want them to have CART. Well, and CART is, you know, captioning at real time, which means somebody live is typing everything that somebody else is saying, and it's showing up on screen, screen very much like captioning is on television, hopefully with less mistakes, right? So, <laughs> um, so in that spirit, though, The question also becomes, yes, CART would be great, but there are also the questions that I would have as an educator. What have we prepared? How how good is their reading skills? You know, like, what does that look like for them? How would they use CART? Why is CART important? Um, Would they want a printed script afterwards? And what are they going to do with that script? So it kind of helps build the teacher's perspective as well as the parent's perspective as what are some prerequisite skills that might need to be in place for CART to start? Or do we not need those things because they are such great readers and they're not getting the auditory information as best as they can. So we need to get that in, you know, in front of them right away. So, you know, there's a variety of strategies to get there, but we also want to make sure we're considering all the angles. And so I think those moments of, hey, I'm thinking about this. I'd like to ask for this. Does this make sense? Or um, like I said, is my child getting the progress that we need to get to catch them up or do they need a different design? Um, And some parents have made decisions that change, you know, the trajectory of their outcomes, just whether it be that they're in one situation and the parent might say, you know what, I'm going to do homeschool or I'm going to do virtual school. So I have more flexibility to do the therapy or the the other teaching supports that need to be done during the day. And it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting time in education because there's so many choices and growing up, you know, wherever I lived and the home, the school that was a quote nearest to me, that's where I was assigned. And that's where I went to school. And, and nowadays it doesn't look like that. And so I think that also is wonderful, but it can be overwhelming. True. Yeah, true. And so we've been talking about school aged, you know, children and public schools and private and homeschool. There is a challenge when transitioning from public secondary high school into college, both 
legally as far as the IEP, which is Individualized Education Plan. Then you go to college and it's and as an educator or, you know, as far as working in academics myself and graduate programs and there, the onus is on the student to go to the department, the university's department of special services or office of disability services and so forth. And they are still covered with my air quotes, you know, by 504, um, the rehabilitation act of 1974, but they need to ensure they get services they need. Right. So do you just work with younger school age kids or, um, young adults who have moved into the, um, you know, college years, if you will, and even vocationally, are there some services or things that folks could take advantage of or, or support, I should say, by working with Carter Hears to make sure they, if not, again, like in the workplace, you have vocational rehab services, things like that, but to ensure that they either know how to access these services, know how to go about advocating for themselves in these service in, in certain ways so that they can take advantage of those services or things that they can do individually to improve their own communication, you know, regardless of, of hearing loss. That's a great question. Um, what I would share is at Carter Hears, we really work hard when they're in school to give them some of those skills. However, um, we have had some parents post graduating from high school that have had their child work with us on certain things, like how do I build a good study habit at college? Or um, even just getting practice with writing emails in a more formal way so that they can request certain services and they use references that are related to specific laws. We teach a lot of that. We use something called Coach written by Lynn Price to really guide our practices with that when they're in high school. However, sometimes um, when they leave high school or things like that, you know, you might have remembered it for that moment. <laughs> We've all done that before, even us. Um, or you might not have confronted that type of situation before. So we do sometimes get phone calls from parents um, just asking questions like, I don't have any rights here at the college, but my child student needs these kinds of things. And so we will be glad to help. But I will say, you know, Vocational rehabilitation does help in workplace settings, but they also will help in um, educational settings, too. So if they need something for college and that kind of thing, VR is still a great resource for vocational rehabilitation. I shouldn't just say VR is a great resource for, for children who have hearing loss, whether they go to school or go to work. Um, but I will say that those specific targets, those things come up. And um, sometimes we do work with children to help them with their study skills and things like that while they're in college. And usually it's a couple coaching sessions. And once they have an outline and they feel comfortable, you know, they got that, that level for a certain reason, you know? And so if that's, if that, those are their targets, they just have to make those practices part of what they do um, to access their environment. So um, I, I do think that while we do do it very rarely, we have done it, um, but we pride ourselves on them being prepared when they leave school. Sure. Good. And that's, that's a great, not even end goal. That's a great goal to have to um, be able to self-advocate, to be able to uh, know the paths they need to look for to continue to access those services beyond school age. Some of, yeah. Some of the things that we do uniquely in the high school realm is that we try to make sure that our kids have an opportunity to go visit 
a place where they would like to work. You know, go to go to an auto body shop, go to an office that sells real estate, go to um, a school that has that has teachers there that are teaching or go to an accounting office. They need to be there and see it and directly experience it so that they know, oh, I didn't think about that. That's something I'm going to have to do in that job. Or I didn't think about how I would communicate that or I need to memorize these codes. I need to memorize, you know, those kinds of skills that our kids are like, whoa, I didn't even think about that part. Hmm. Um, and it also just gives them an idea of how do people communicate in, in those environments? Because the communication that happens in an auto body shop and a communicate, the communication and the words that are used in an accounting office and how people talk to each other might look different. And so our kids have to be prepared for that. They do look different. <laughs> they <laughs> do look different. Just when I was in a previous career, when I was in transportation, um, when you're out on the docks or even in dispatch, you're shouting at each other. You're screaming at guys and girls across the dock. Um, you can't, nobody can hear that well. So it's all a matter of not, not signing per se, but, uh, physically gesturing your needs, you know, but then when you transition, you start working days and you're in the office, completely different. You're on the phone a lot, right? You're in quieter situations. You're in different, you know, different offices have different acoustics and, uh, you're in conference calls and all that sort of thing. So yeah, that, to be honest, that would be a benefit to every single high school student, right? Um, no matter where they end up, just looking at what a workplace along certain lines is going to look like, right? Landscapers, they're outside all the time, completely different than, you know, like you said, working in office space or working, you know, in a law firm. I think it's true that, you know, all high school kids would benefit from an experience like that. And I know previously before COVID, they would have like a career day where the kids could leave early and go do those kinds of things. But also, I think it's important. It kind of goes with something I may have said before, which is, you know, our kids need direct experiences and they need to be told like, hey, when we go in here today, these are the things I want you to be looking for. And our kids need to be paying attention to how do they communicate with each other? What kind of language did they use? Were they formal when they talked to each other? Did they use slang? You know, like there's lots of just language pieces and interaction so that they know like what is what is normal for me to come in here and, and, and engage with them so that I can build a relationship. And, and so those are some things I don't know that we necessarily highlight to every high school kid that goes, I know nobody told me that. They just said, well, how was it like? What was it like when you went to so-and-so's office? And of course, you can tell them all about it. But for our kids, we're really trying to prepare them specifically so that if, they, if they're going to be expected to answer a telephone for the kids who have the ability to do that with their hearing loss, then we need to introduce them to the different types of phones that they might want to have sitting at their desk where it has maybe a text phone or maybe it's just an amplified phone um, or using a lot of the Bluetooth capability that there is now. You know, there's options out there, but what are they comfortable with? How do they how do they make sure that environment is accessible and they can participate and be, you know, contributors to that environment. So I do think it looks just a little bit different, but yes, no doubt every high school student should definitely have that kind of experience. Yeah, definitely. So shifting gears a bit here with your background in deaf education and so forth, I'm sure you've seen your share of potential opportunities, um, 
you know, things that, um, that just could be done differently to meet different needs in a different way. So, um, I'd like you to talk to us about the quill model you've put together your, um, and I don't want to do it any disservice, but you have quite the initiative going on with this. So, uh, why don't you tell us what the quill model is, what, uh, what it's going to look like and what, what you see, what your vision is and how it's going to meet some of these unmet needs. So this is my exciting chit chat because I love this. Um, thanks, Jason, for the wonderful opportunity to share this because it is my heart. Um, and don't get me wrong. I love Carter Hears and what we've done there. But I'm in my next generation. I'm in my next phase. Right. So there's um, there's job. Then there's passion. Right. And and to be able well, but to be able to marry those and then there's your personal self. Right. To be able to marry those. That's that's all we do. We, we, we breathe, eat, uh, expel waste, try to f survive. And then other, what separates us from the animals, higher level thinking, and to be able to live a life where we can combine that, right? Professional, personal passion. And just, again, you never work another day in your life. That's right. That's right. Or at least, or at least the hardships don't, don't feel so hard because you realize that there's a greater purpose, right? So, you know, Carter Hears was really born out of something that I felt like I was um, skilled to do. I had a passion to do it. The piece that you added there for this particular conversation is the personal. And so Quill models personal for me. Um, as I've mentioned, you know, I'm part of a, I'm part of three generations of deaf educators, but I did not realize I had a great relationship with my grandmother. She died when I was still in high school. My mom has passed on since then as well. But what occurred is one of my mother's cousins said, hey, Marianne, I found something that I think you might like. And she sent me a book. And it was a book written by my grandmother on educating students who have hearing loss. And she, when she found out my mom was deaf, and this was, of course, we kind of talked, we might have talked about this last time, but I'm going to repeat this piece. Um, we believe my mom was born prelingually deaf. I mean, she, I'm sorry, she was born hearing, but she became deaf, not prelingually, but possibly postlingually. So she had, um, and what that means is before she could acquire speech, but at this point with her being postlingually deaf, we think that she heard sounds and she was able to make sounds and put words together because she was about three, two and a half, three years old when she got mumps and scarlet fever. At that time, there was no MMR vaccine given out to every child like there is today. And so her her medicine to 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 save her life basically was ototoxic. And so because of that ototoxicity, she had a profound hearing loss. If I showed you her audiogram, it's one of those that has like the lightning bolt at the end with the arrow that goes down <laughs> on like the one tens, one twenties, you know what I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah. Non recordable. No responses. Yeah. And my mother with her hearing aid, as I shared on the last podcast you know, she had certain favorite hearing aids. And so her oscillating hearing aid that she had that she could turn over and talk. I mean, there's some serious training of the brain that went on there before we really understood that that's what we were doing. I mean, it's just crazy. So what my grandmother did is once she realized, okay, Eleanor is going to be deaf. This is going to be part of my life. She was already an educator. She was an educated woman. Um, she decided to go back to Northwestern and at the time get her what's the equitable 
speech language pathology degree. And she said, that's not enough. She needs something more. This doesn't completely add up for me. So she went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and she started working with other people and created a deaf education program there. As part of that, she went to A.G. Bell, and she asked for some some funds to support what she wanted to what she wanted to try. And she, for all intents and purposes, made this classroom in a basement along with the support of the University of Illinois and Champaign-Urbana schools and A.G. Bell. And she got a classroom downstairs in the basement and she started teaching deaf kids there. So you knew this growing up or you just discovered this as an adult? It's like, oh, my gosh, what was grandma doing? So interestingly enough, I knew like on the periphery that she used to work with deaf people, that she worked in a school, that she, you know, that she visited other deaf schools. Like she used to she used to go places and travel to work with other deaf schools and not schools for the deaf, but schools that had deaf children. And I want to be clear about that. So she she would go to those places and look at their programming and say, okay, well, this is what I would change and this is what I would do. So eventually she and her best friend, Pearl Sisk, who was a speech language pathologist, they worked together to write some books on what is this supposed to look like? What does success look like for these people? Gotcha. So as a, as a, as a very interesting side note, the foreword in my grandmother's book is written by Margaret Key, who invented Fitzgerald Key. That is a it's a it's a um, system for learning how to read and write, um, mostly writing, but like understanding the English language. Basically, the key unlocks the English language for deaf and hard of hearing kids. So, and a lot of a lot of deaf educators would be familiar with that. So, I share that just to say that. I didn't understand the circles that maybe my grandmother was working in, but I knew what she, you know, you're her grandkid. You, you, you plant things in her backyard and do laundry and play croquet. You know, I wasn't completely aware. I knew that my grandmother worked a lot with my mom because she was very, in her mind, her goal for my mother was to be literate and speak like a newscaster on, on TV. That's what she wanted my mother to do. And so that was important to her. I know that sometimes, Jason, as you know, in the world of deaf education, it is sometimes polarized. You know, we have a strong deaf culture signing group and we have a strong listening and speaking group. But a majority of us kind of live in the middle, which is it doesn't always go as planned on either side. And so we have a lot of people that live in the middle because we live in a culture that's not one way or the other. Um well, so, but my grandmother at the, oh, go ahead. No, no, it's okay. And well, you, you know, also there's often not comprehensive support services education in that, you know, the child may learn sign. We had a number, I had a number of, of patients, kids I saw for cochlear implants that um, their parents wanted, you know, oral, uh, wanted them to learn spoken language and but they also, for whatever reason, attended school at the at school for the deaf. And so they would sign and not get a lot of oral during the week or, but then, so they became pretty darn fluent, if not completely fluent in sign. But then when they get home on the weekends, their parents don't sign. They got no way to communicate with them, you know? So, so that sort of comprehensiveness where it's like, okay, let's, uh, let's, let's give a, a solid form of communication across 
their entire support network, right? Parents, friends, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so it's it's kind of not done, not that it's not done well, but there's such an opportunity for getting a mode, whatever that may be, and making sure that individual is fluent in it and that they can communicate and accomplish and succeed in educational environments, vocational environments, social environments, et cetera. Because if they just have, it's like, it's like so many people that take a foreign language in high school, you come out, you can still say, yeah, a habla espanol. But other than that, you couldn't order food, even if it's written, <laughs> you know, in front of you. At so, the restaurant, you, can't, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's like getting a little bit, but not enough to really solidify and, this doesn't even go into the conversation about, you know, brain development and as far as language and communication, language, when I say in general, and the way to express yourself language, no matter what yeah. that mode is. So, yeah, I can see the opportunities there. And, and I think also even in that spectrum, right, we've had we've had a lot of deaf adults that are maybe very deaf culture that have children that are hearing. And they have to navigate that world that their hearing child is participating in, even if they fluently know sign language. So as a CODA, there were many instances where I would watch that. And I know that intrinsically, and I kind of left our last podcast like this, don't ever compromise connection, right? Do whatever you have to, to have a connection with your child. Like you talked about, you know, there, there might be situations where children are, they choose to send their children to the school for the deaf. They're there all week. And when they come home, they don't have a communication mode with them. That is hard. That, that, that's, that, that's a hard thing. It's Parents have to make tough decisions no matter what they are, even if they choose a cochlear implant. You know that well, Jason. So, um, But the purpose of the Quill model is that we are going to, what, I, what we're promoting with the model is, very, is something that was very successful that my grandmother put together with her friend Pearl Sisk. And we are rewriting um, a book that they wrote together called Expressive Connected Speech. And we're also rewriting the educational um, setup for what Quill School is supposed to look like because it's got a rhyme and a reason for why we do what we do. So there's a set amount of time during the day that's dedicated to language, language focused, meaning if you choose sign, you can choose the sign language track. If you want to choose oral, you can the listening and speaking track, you can choose that. And then those strategies with those teachers in those environments allow for those to be automatic in the classroom so that, you know, if there's a we sign, sign, fingerspell, sign, then that's what's going to happen in that classroom. With our listening and speaking classroom, if a child says, you know, if we say a word and they say it incorrectly, we're going to say, OK, we're going to stop and listen to this word five times in a row. Let's listen. And then we would say that, that word five times. And then we would hope that, that there, there's some automaticity in the brain happening there for them to speak that word correctly. But that would be embedded. It doesn't replace speech therapy. It doesn't replace sign language development. But those things would be embedded that they don't normally receive in a general education setting. Right. So the, the model itself promotes 60 percent of the day being focused on language. There's also a level of functioning and understanding social situations. That's about another 10 to 15 percent of every day. And then the academics are embedded. Some of those academics where we practice our language and our social and functional pieces would be with science and social studies. But where we use our cognitive piece of language would be during English language arts and math. And so this, the school is set up. We'd really like to start 
at the preschool age at three, but some of the, some of the state laws don't necessarily allow all that. But um, so the idea right now is that it would be from five years old. Um, and right now there's a committee in South Carolina called the Quill School, and they're working to bring that as a free public charter school to South Carolina. And so I'm, I'm happy to say, I hope I'm not going to steal their thunder, but they just received a wonderful grant to keep their work going to do that. So I encourage you, if you're interested in it, to go check that out if you live in South Carolina. But the Quill model itself is able to be replicated even um, at different locations all throughout the United States. But the idea is that we use specific academic targets. We use a certain type of um, curriculum that is vibrant with specific words or visuals, depending on your track. We also offer... If you want your child to be bilingual, bimodal, they can spend half of the day in the sign language classroom and then the other half of the day in the all listening and speaking classroom. And the purpose of that is to build both skills in, in our vision when they are interacting in, at lunchtime or whatever else. The idea is that we are what we like to call hashtag. We are all deaf. We are all deaf together, meaning that deafness doesn't look the same, but we can practice our our skills, our needs for communicating with somebody that maybe doesn't communicate the same way I do, whether they're deaf or not. But the idea that I'm going to have more patience with you because we have an understanding that we both have hearing loss. So how are we going to communicate if we don't communicate the same? What are our strategies with each other to bring that about? And it can happen in a safe space and it can happen in an educating space where adults and other people can can model that for them. And that's important because um you know, our kids are going to always interact with somebody who doesn't necessarily communicate like them for whatever reason. It's going to happen. Um, even if it's not sign versus listening and speaking, it could easily be somebody that you meet that speaks Spanish. Well, you still have to resolve it. You know, there's still going to have to be a resolution. Um, and then the other big piece for Quill Model is how do you engage community? One of the gifts of what my grandmother put together was that she engaged the university community, the school district itself, and then also AG Bell. So by putting those groups together, there were a lot of people, I mean, this is back in the day. So we, you had farmers out in the middle of Illinois driving their deaf kids all the way in to Champaign every day for classes. This is what these parents did. The, the farm mom you know, didn't stay in the house and do things on the farm, she left and she, they took their deaf and hard of hearing kids into town. And so that that was also important because things that they did, which would be the projects, there's what we call quarterly projects as part of the Quill model that engage the community. So there might be a fall festival. And so these kids have to engage in how to communicate. And instead of like dancing cards, you know, at a dance that you might do, people who come to the fall festival would have a language card and they would be working to complete whatever is on that card to engage with others. Um, some of the other things that we would have, and this is a huge piece of it, is that we really believe in parent education. And so um, it has a structure for 10 months out of the year for parents to engage in. It might be learning sign. It might be learning about technology. It might be learning about um, uh, just struggles that you have as a parent, making the hard decision. What was the first six months with a cochlear implant like? What were the first, um, what were my biggest struggles when we started to sign? 
anything like anything that they would need, those resources would be there for them so that they would be on a continual basis. So they have a group. How do I teach math to my kid who is auditory verbal? How do I teach math to my kid that signs? There is targeted support for parents, not just how can I help my kid in math? You know, like there's a lot of wonderful schools that will host a math night or a reading night at school. And they're great, but they don't always have the other pieces that help make it come alive for our kids or address their communication mode that really does give them the access to bring that alive. And so those are the those are the targets of the Quill model. And the Quill model really shows that between the generations, my grandmother had a very um, strong belief in listening and speaking. And she she lived that out with my mom. And my mom was very successful with that. But as an adult and in her graduate school, she learned she learned to sign at college. And when she was in graduate school, they said, well, you know, are you going to sign with your baby? She was pregnant with me. And her um, teacher, McKay Vernon, Vernon, which most people might know, he's very famous and he wrote a lot of books. um, He said to my mom, oh, Eleanor, you need to sign with her. It's not going to stop her from talking. She's 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 going to be hearing and you're going to need her to communicate with your entire community. So I feel comfortable if I meet somebody that's deaf to communicate with them. If they sign, I feel comfortable if they do both. I feel comfortable if they listen and speak. My mom really made that 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 door completely open for me, because one of the things that I learned from my grandmother to my mom and to myself is that communication is connection. If you can't maintain that, no matter what, you're going to lose relationship. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Um, and, and, And sometimes if you do compromise that, your 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 connection or your relationship is limited. And there can be some 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 grief and some hardship in that. And and our goal with the Quill model is to not let that happen. So you, there is the Quill model and then you had mentioned Quill school. So the model, is this something you see looking to integrate into current public school, school situations, right? Where they utilize this model for children uh, with hearing loss or is it looking or is this to be like a brick and mortar set up in different states, different areas that then children with hearing loss um, would be enrolled in? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I know I'm saying it right, you know, to where a, a model of instruction that would be integrated or taken on by the current school district, current school of any type, private, et cetera, or a separate charter type magnet school situation that they would attend. So, yeah. So in South Carolina, the strategy right now with the committee that's doing the Quill School, it, and that's what they they, they named themselves, um, and they're using the Quill model as part of that, obviously. Um, but the purpose of that is, is that it would be a charter, which means we're, we believe in doing it differently, right? That's the purpose of having a charter school. Um, but the idea is, is that it the model itself could be adopted by local school districts if they wanted to do that. They would have to follow the the strategy, but they also need something that is very difficult, which is a critical mass of kids. They need to have enough kids to make that model work, right? You can't just have two or three kids in that classroom because we're not engaging enough 
language to make that happen. So I, I kind of see it as more of a cooperative. If a, if a group of school districts said, hey, we'd like to do this and offer this, because some smaller school districts might want to send their children there. Sure. Um, but it does take coordination. Um, I also so have that I'm also working curriculum followed at one location, have children on, a, again, that district, two or three districts brought in to that to one location so that that model can be um, executed. And the, the, the dream of the vision is that if the kids come when they're three, four or five years old, that by the time they hit third grade, they should be able to go out and integrate themselves into a normal learning situation so that they should be fluent enough and capable enough. If they're signing to move into a classroom and, and use an interpreter, they should be able, if they're listening and speaking, they should be able to, you know, be on par with their peers language wise. Like that's the purpose of it. There has been a lot of conversation about, you know, not everybody gets an immediate fresh start, right? So some kids who might see this model and say, oh, I'd love that. I want to, I want to be a part of that. And they're already in second grade, right? So what do you do there? That is um, led the, led at least the Quill school to consider adding grades up until eighth grade and considering that for other students and, and doing that, which the model can support. Um, but the, the idea is, is that if you get them at three, they're ready by third grade um, based on the supports that they have. Um, I will say that the model itself has been rec recognized and is seen globally. So I'm not sure over the next couple of years what that's going to look like. Um, there are interested groups that would like to, to implement this in their, in their countries. Um, and then there's also, you know, we have a lot of options here. I think we have a lot of great, we have schools for the deaf that have been around and are an icon for their community and culture and things like that. And then we also have a lot of wonderful, resourceful schools for the deaf that are um, more oral based. Um, and I love, love to work with them like DePaul and CID and some other groups that are wonderful for that purpose. But there's there's not something that really lets the pendulum swing and the purpose of that. And we know that life looks like that. Um, and so that's that's really the, the hope of the Quill model is that we're really teaching them how to have that well-rounded full, de fully developed language in their life um, to make them, you know, the best, the best that they can be, that they feel fulfilled and that they can participate in anything. That's one of the gifts I think my mom really gave me. And I think the design of what my grandmother created led to that because she really was a whole person. And I don't always see that um, with, with deaf and hard of hearing individuals. I, there are some that I do, and then there are some that I don't. And that might be true of the general population too, Jason, and I get that. But I feel like with our group, because we do work typically very intensely together, that we should have better outcomes than that. Definitely, definitely. So how, yeah. how, um, how's it been promoting this model? And in, in, in what ways? I mean, whether it's a grant funding situation or as far as, I should say, promoting w what you currently have and where you are maybe along the timeline of um, of getting to a place where you can begin promoting or instituting these, uh, this, this model. Yeah. So we were fortunate. Uh, we had a fortunate opportunity to speak at a conference that was held in Hawaii about it. Um, and they, they bring everybody across the United States for special education and they do a whole series just on deaf education. So that was really a wonderful thing to debut it. Um, and talk about the model and 
and do those kinds of things. Um, a lot of the written pieces that go with the model should be up and ready within, I would say, the next six months to 12 months for, for the model itself. Um, we already have a strategy of what every day would look like. A lot of the, what I call day-to-day, how do I implement this? What are the, what are the um, key components as far as curriculum and, and testing materials and intaking of students? What does that look like? All of those, what I call um, procedural, um, you know, make sure you're checking off all those things. Those things have already been established and, and are identified. Um, but I think the the other key piece is making sure that the updates and and how that's carried out, there are some very specific things that need to be done by us. And they are in process and they're almost done. I think they're on the last uh, page on the Quill model page on, on the website. But, you know, I think that we're getting closer and closer. I will be attending a global uh, education and inner inner innovation conference, sorry, um, a global forum there in Las Vegas later on this month. And I'm very excited to be there uh, because I think that Quill Model will have some impact because people from all different countries are going to be there. And a lot of other countries in the world do address deaf education a little bit differently, meaning that they really do understand the need for intensive instruction um, for language. And so I think um, I think that might be a very prime way to look at that. And I, and I hope that in the United States, even in South Carolina, that we start to embrace some of these new ways of, of, of addressing children with hearing loss and ins- ensuring their uh, language foundation. So what primarily does success with the quilt model look for you? When, when would yeah. you sit back, pop off the cork off a bottle of wine and say, it's rolling. This is making a difference. I can yeah. see it. Yeah. So for me, I would love to see something start here where I where I am because it's the most accessible for me, of course. Um, but if it were in a different country, I would certainly welcome that. I tease everybody that, hey, I'll know I have made it when I can set up a Quill model school in Dubai. Um, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but that was one of my uh, ha-has. Um, but honestly, for me, I think that there's a lot of desire for something that that I'm putting out there with the Quill model, because I think all of us have a common understanding that language is important and that communicating with each other and building relationships is important. And I think moving forward, if I can see more well-rounded, confident learners and engagers in their community, in their classrooms, and their families, that to me is success. Um, I definitely see that in, gen, you know, even now, like there are kids that go to a typical public school and they're, they're engaged in all of those things. But Jason, you and I know that takes a lot of work, a lot of work by those parents, a lot of work by those children. And sometimes they have to do it alone. Sometimes they have a very small group of people that support them through it. So I see this as an opportunity to put more people together to kind of build that character up and build that momentum. And hopefully we'll see some larger numbers of successful students. Marianne Carter, once again. If you'd like to learn more about her business, Carter Hears, 
or the quill model, please check out show notes. You can also check online at www.carterhears.com and www.quillmodel.com. And if you like what we're doing here, hit subscribe and leave us a rating. We appreciate you. Edited and produced by me. Music by the amazing Lauren Zettler. Until next time.